Hello, this is Rob Hunt, and welcome to another edition of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. to 928-1975 from Lindley Meadows, right next to the Keysar Stadium in San Francisco, California. This is the show we're going to cover today and discuss in depth. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Larry Michigan of Michigan Law in Chicago, Illinois. How are you doing today, Larry? And what do you think of Franklin's? Love it, Rob. Uh, always love a Franklin's anytime they play it. And uh, I know you've got some stories to tell the listeners about Franklin's in this show and uh, why we may be hearing it again a little bit later on. Yeah, I do. And, uh, you know, 1975, as most listeners know, was not your typical Grateful Dead year. You know, the Grateful Dead were going into hiatus. They stayed in hiatus until uh, April of 1976 when they came back in, in Portland. But, you know, it, it, this coincided with the release of Blues for Allah. The only real show that was, you know, predating this that, um, that covered that album was one that every Deadhead's familiar with, which is 81375 from the Great American Music Hall which is considered to be, you know, one of the, you know, I'd say 10 greatest shows of all time, if not higher, uh, just based on the energy, based on the room, based on the new material. It's the only time the Grateful Dead ever played, you know, what I'd call an album show, where they really tried to cover an entire album. But, you know, this is, the show we're listening to today was only the uh, the third time they ever played Franklin's uh, to an audience. It's only the um, the second time they ever played Help on, Help on the Way with lyrics. The first time they played it, they played it without lyrics in both the Help on the Way and Slipknot having no lyrics, and they, they introduced Franklin's. This is only the third one, and it's the only show between the Great American Music Hall and when they came back in 76. So it's just a, it's a really interesting uh, show to take a look at because it features so much new material, and it features such high energy. And, and honestly, it's like after they've been practicing like hell to get these songs right, which sometimes you know speaks really, really well for the performance you're going to get out of it, as we just heard on you know the way Garcia just absolutely attacked that jam in the, uh, in the middle of Franklin's. Yeah, he really did go after it. And that 81375 show that you referred to, the Dead actually released that one as one from the vault a while back, one of their first official vault releases, um, even before uh, Dick's Picks uh, started dropping. Uh, they came out with one from the vault, one and two. I can't remember if they added a third. They had, I think, four View from the Vaults, where they released uh, the CD as well as the DVD of the show. And it was very fun, you know, when it first started coming out, you knew that it was their official releases, but that was a great show, and it, it, I think it probably is uh, up there in the top 10 uh, of Grateful Dead shows of all time. You know, it, it, it's an inspired situation that we find them in, uh, playing in Lindley Meadows, and, uh, you know, they're really having a little bit of fun, maybe, uh, you know, a little bit relaxed, perhaps, from the uh, beginning of the, uh, of, of the time off for them, and, you know, having a chance to come out and just kind of flex their muscles and play what they want to play, how they want to play it. Absolutely. And then, you know, again, as you're introducing new songs, you know, a lot of times any band will go through different iterations of, you know, what's the shape that song is eventually going to take. And I think that, you know, with Franklin's, the first time they played it is much different than the second time they played it. And the third time they played it, which is this this show that we're talking about, 
it's the first time you really see Franklin's take the shape that it was going to have for the next, you know, two, two and a half years of, you know, getting really, really hot towards the end and then really slowing it down and having a really loopy kind of uh, ending before they come back in with like the anthemic, um, like final finale of the Franklin's, which, you know, we'll, we'll listen to a little bit later as well, which is why, you know, yeah, we, we will hear this, um, this song twice today. But it's really, really cool to watch a song, you know, take shape. And, you know, along with that, the uh, the Slipknot from, you know, 81375 versus the one from, from 928, really, really different as well. And very, very different from, you know, kind of what we've grown to expect a Slipknot to sound like in the late 80s and the uh, early 90s. So it's, uh, you know, a lot of changes, a lot of progression. And so really fun to listen to. And so for those of you out there that uh, that haven't heard the show before, you know, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's it's not you know a full two setter. It's it's something I'm, I I don't know the backstory on the show, but you know it was one basically long set with again a lot of blues for all material in it, uh, some of which we'll hear you know a little bit later. Other than that, man, what's going on in Canvas World? How you doing? What what's new? Well, I'm I'm doing really well. I just wanted to drop back in because when you mentioned the Slipknot uh, and your your comment on it, uh, that's fascinating because it echoes a comment that Rob Kortz from Dark Star Orchestra made on the show a while back when he said when the band gets ready to go out on tour, uh, the one thing he always has to go back and review is the Slipknot because if they're playing it in different time periods, the Slipknot is different. And, you know, I had never, uh, I guess, focused on it quite the same way that he would, uh, but I really found that fascinating that, you know, of all the parts of the tunes and, and that whole uh, help slip frank combination uh it's really the slipknot that that required the most prep and the most work and i love it you know i i always love a good slipknot and one of the things we noted about this set right was that they had the help slip and then the franklins doesn't come for a few more songs yeah that's it i can't think of another time where they split up a help slip franklins and this they played the help slip and ended this after the slipknot and then uh and then played you know something in the uh, in the middle i think um it was a um Music never stopped. They love each other. Uh, then beat it on down the line, and then came back in and played Franklin's as an individual song. Which name me another time they've done that. Like I, I know they've done the Help Slip Fire. I know they've done Franklin's. You know, tons of times without the Help Slip. But it's not too often that you have a Help Slip and a Franklin's in the same show without having them uh, glued together. So it's it's really really unique as far as Slipknot goes. Yeah, like we've always thought about as having kind of that ending part where it's almost like a rhythm devil's style like right that doesn't that doesn't exist in this you know that's a a much different sort of um way of playing it that as the the song evolved that became the staple especially as you're coming out you were you knew when the song was transitioning to franklin's because you actually got the bridge that had that you know that part of it and they hadn't you know they hadn't really figured that out in 1975 when they first released it yeah, you know, and, and once again, it's just a great way to watch, you know, how the band on stage works its way through a tune and, and, and kind of takes it, you know, from wherever it was. You know, we've seen a couple of examples of this. We saw it with Wave the Flag. You know, we talked about a few weeks ago how they were dropping hints of Eyes of the World into an early uh, 1969 Dark Star. And it, I think that's one of the things we all love about the Grateful Dead is, is the opportunity to watch the song develop over time. And, you know, speaking of that, and, and you mentioned something right before we went on there that got me thinking about this, but I think you said it was 35 years ago today, the touch of gray made it into the top 10. And I, I find that fascinating, right? Because touch of gray was released in 1987. I think the album came out uh, with the studio version, but of course I had been hearing it 
in concert as far back as 83, possibly 82, but I don't, I think 83 was the first year I heard on tour. 82 is when they, uh, when they started playing it on tour though. Yeah. That's a song that if you hear it back then and then you hear it today, it has the same basic tune other than, you know, some different lyrics that Jerry kind of, you know, was playing around with and, you know, working in and out and, and stuff like that. But, you know, it's great to think of Touch of Grey as, uh, uh, you know, as, as a number one hit and, you know, how much time and effort they really put into that song uh, to get it to where it was. And uh, that's what they do, right? They just evolve and, and we see it happening in real time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and as I said, 35 years ago, it, it was, I think it reached number nine was, was the best it got, you know, but there's a couple other songs that made it into the, uh, the Hot 100 as well at the same time. But if you think that, you know, the iconic, like when we've covered it before, the iconic Madison Square Garden run in 1987, not only were they playing Touch, you know, pretty frequently during the, the time where it was on the uh, on the charts. I mean, for a while there, they were playing it either every night or every other night uh, on summer tour. But at that same time, um, Los Lobos had a number one hit with La Bamba. So if you think back to what I think is, you know, I always talk about as my favorite set of the 1980s, uh, 1987, you know, when Jerry splits up the good lovin' with the good lovin' La Bamba, good lovin', it only hit me when I was looking at the charts in the last couple of days to think about when, you know, Touch of Grey peaked, that like, my God, when they played La Bamba, there was actually a number one song on the Hot 100 that when they did it, which I don't think there's ever been a time where the Grateful Dead have covered a number one song, you know, while it was number one. They, they might have done some others like, you know, maybe I Fought the Law got to number one back in its time or, you know, some other Beatles tunes like, you know, Revolution, but never when it was actually on the top of the charts. You know, that's like, that's like when Jimi Hendrix played um, played Sgt. Pepper's before the album came out. You know, it's, there's certain things that, that that bands have done, but you know, for for the Dead to cover La Bamba as a hit song while they had another song in the top ten, it's the closest we've ever seen to the Grateful Dead being a pop band was you know that September of 1987. I can't disagree with that. Although um, I know that in the uh, Fillmore West March 1969. February, March, 1969 shows the third night and they came out and they did a complete cover. Pigpen sang a complete cover of Hey Jude. And I don't know what word Hey Jude wound up on the charts, but I got to believe that, you know, right around that time, it was pretty high up on the charts as well. So I guess the point is you don't see it very often, but uh, every now and then they'll surprise you and, 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 you know, pull a tune out just to say, hey, we're listening to the radio too. And uh, certainly the La Bamba was a great one, um, you know, and, and, and the touch of gray and all of that to be able to hear both in terms of how they develop their own tunes and which other bands' tunes they choose to play and when they choose to play them. And, you know, for whatever reason, that tune really moved Jerry. And we know we've listened to it and we've talked about how, you know, you've got Jerry with jelly knees in that song right is he's dancing and he's wailing and he's playing and he's just having a good old time yeah no doubt no doubt and i think that's you know the by all accounts you know kind of the way uh, the band was playing um in late 75 as well because they were playing so infrequently that when they did play by all accounts they're having a really good time doing it and i know that 8 13 75 like everything i've ever read about that show is that you know just everything came together and uh, and worked, and everyone was firing all cylinders. And you know, if you listen to each individual performance by each artist within the band, all of them were great that night. They all you know were alive. But I love this uh, this nine twenty eight show as well, and it doesn't get nearly the same recognition. So, figured uh, you know why not cover a one off and cover one that um, that is really experimental um, during that period. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, since this is that period of time, uh, the songs we're featuring today. Uh, you know, have a uh, understanding of them all being relatively new and just being kind of tried out. And I think the next clip you have for us today fits that category pretty well. Yeah, let's uh, let's try that one on for size. Dan, go ahead and cue it up.
that, of course, coming from the uh, the music never stopped, which was another brand new tune coming off of Blues for All right around that time, which became a staple um, of the Grateful Dead's sets you know, for the remainder of their career, uh, usually as a first set closer. But you know, again, really fun to watch them try it on for size. And I love that version of it because, you know, when you jump right into the middle of it, you don't necessarily know you're listening to the music never stopped. And, you know, as they as they kind of make their way to the end of that jam, all of a sudden they get back into the familiar uh, tune that everybody recognizes right away. But, um, you know, anytime they were taking these songs out for, you know, a test drive or anything like that, they were always, you know, kind of coming up with new ways to fill up the, the, the jams and the, uh, and, and the gaps that they created in the song. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So speaking of um, of new ways to come up with things, did you see the uh, the article about uh, Kellyanne Conway uh, coming up with new ways to, to find ways to embellish what's happening and uh, as far as the truth or you know alternative facts as she likes to call them, with respect to uh, an interview she was doing and talking about John Fetterman in Pennsylvania uh, around the fact that Fetterman was flying a, a marijuana flag over the Capitol and then segueing that into overdose deaths, which obviously everyone knows are not related to cannabis. What do you think? Did you think it was you know, intellectual dishonesty there? Did you think, you know, if, if you heard it, um, just curious to your thoughts. I don't like Kellyanne Conway, so I'll just say that to start. And, you know, people can now take the rest of my comments, whatever they want from there. Look, here's what Kellyanne Conway says. Not only has he, Fetterman, not worked a day in his life, Sean Hannity. He hasn't worked a day as a lieutenant governor, Conway told Fox's News. Sean Hannity, who introduced the segment by mocking Fetterman's difficulties with speech since the stroke in May. So we're prime time Fox News here, guys, right? We're already barreling down that road. But then she goes on to say, Fetterman put the marijuana flag up. He thought that was funny. He's trolling his opponents, Conway added. Here's what's not funny, she said, that there has been a doubling of overdose deaths in Pennsylvania, period, end quote. Now, she did go on to make a comment about fentanyl, which could have possibly been interpreted. And I know, Rob, you kind of felt that maybe when she was talking about overdoses, she was talking about the fentanyl. But he said, when you have a paragraph where it says he put the marijuana flag up, here's what's not funny. There's been a doubling of overdose deaths in Pennsylvania. I'm not willing to give her the benefit of the doubt on that. I'm willing to say that she was speaking right out and trying to associate a terror of overdose deaths with the popularity of new marijuana laws that are coming online. Otherwise, you know, she her her, her statement about putting the marijuana flag up it, it just kind of is, is just kind of left standing there. I don't see it, you know, any other way. I, even being nice to her at a minimum, she's poking at Fetterman because he supports cannabis, which is already bad enough. But I think that this is, you know, pretty standard uh, score for the uh, uh, Republicans. You know, when you when you govern and you try to uh, uh, get your policies passed by creating a climate of fear and intimidation and and scaring all of your supporters into doing what you think you have to do is best. Uh, it's really easy to whip up some public uh, feeling against marijuana by making a statement that at best is vague as to what she was referring to. But um, I think she knew exactly what she was saying, and she was trying to throw overdose deaths in there and send a message that Fetterman believes in things that will cause overdose deaths. Yeah, so first of all, you and I see the same way in politics uh, more often than not, far more often than not. Uh, and I, too, echo your statement that uh, I'm no fan of Kellyanne Conway's either. And I think uh, I, I've heard her gaslight many times. I've heard her, uh, you know, flat out lie many times. I've heard her try to, to take things that are indefensible and make them defensible. But in this case, you know, when I listened to the, uh, the clip and I, I listened to it you know, prior to, um, to you know, reading the print version of it, 
I thought there was a true sort of uh, delineation between when she finished the quote around cannabis and when then she starts uh, into the overdose death uh, quote. I thought that, you know, there was a, just enough pause in between that it sounded like she shifted topics. Now, having said that, I, I still believe that it wasn't by accident that she created a bridge between the two. But I really do think that, you know, when she was talking about overdose deaths, she was very clear that these were fentanyl-related deaths. But if you're the listener and you're not, you know, listening carefully uh, and you're not parsing every word to try to determine what it is, you definitely take that as a segue of one into the other of like, oh, cannabis, supporter of cannabis, oh, overdose, oh, you know, fentanyl is an afterthought, uh, where you're still making that connection in, in a listener's mind between overdose deaths and, uh, and cannabis use. And there's where I thought the intellectual dishonesty was. I mean, I, I don't think that, I don't think she was doing anything to try to, uh, to create um, any space between the two. Now, if you listen to her words, she can say, oh, no, it's very clear. I said fentanyl. I said fentanyl. And, and she did. But she certainly said it right after discussing, you know, cannabis and John Fetterman. I think the, uh, the goal was to, to make the listeners think John Fetterman supports cannabis. Cannabis, you know, leads to overdoses. Overdoses and, and fentanyl are, are connected. You know, I, all drugs are bad and all drugs kill and Fetterman's in favor. And that's where I thought it was terribly uh, intellectually dishonest on her part. Yeah. And, you know, we can agree to disagree on it, and that's fine. Either way, she's a troll. She's not uh, good for marijuana, but she's not good for the truth, and she's not good for anything. And quite frankly, they are all deplorable. You know, Hillary Clinton had that right. I don't know why she ran from that so quickly. You know, when you, when you think that the, the segment begins with Sean Hannity mocking uh, Fetterman's difficulties with speech, a guy who suffered a stroke, has bounced back, is running for public office, and Sean Hannity decides, oh, this is funny, let's mock the fact that the guy had a stroke and he can't speak, you know, kind of suggesting maybe there's something wrong with this guy, and then boom, you got Kellyanne Conway driving her truck right down the center, throwing marijuana right out there. You know, whatever her purpose was, she did not hesitate to throw uh, marijuana right out into the middle of it, and of course, by doing so, participated in the ongoing lie about marijuana, and even if, you know, we... Even by mentioning overdose deaths, it, it, it's it's so dishonest. You know, we know that marijuana doesn't kill people. We know this. And you know, when you read the article, you can go and you can look at the record of overdose deaths for drugs, and there aren't any for marijuana. It doesn't happen. Uh, it does happen with fentanyl. It does happen with other drugs. And if she's truly concerned about fentanyl and overdose deaths, then good for her. Go out and really politic on the issue of fentanyl, but leave marijuana the hell out of it. And don't create anything where somebody might be able to draw a line, which I think is exactly what she's trying to do. And, um, you know, she's, she's incredibly intellectually dishonest, as is Sean Hannity, as, as are all of these guys. And as long as we're doing this, did you hear Tucker Carlson yesterday suggest that hurricanes are a scam? <laughs> Tucker Carlson on the news yesterday suggested that hurricanes are a scam and they're only out there for people who want to uh, yell about uh, climate change. And, you know, the hurricanes are always overdone. We all know it's just a scam. I'm like, these guys are really, uh, they all need to smoke a little marijuana, man. These guys are out there and, you know, whatever they're thinking, I don't know. But for Kellyanne Conway to get up and say, here's my advice to Kellyanne Conway. Don't talk about marijuana, okay? Just don't freaking talk about it and save us all a hell of a lot of trouble. You know, stick to things you know about, which, in my opinion, is really nothing. But certainly not marijuana, for God's sakes. You know, there's enough problems in this industry, you know, without somebody like her gallivanting in and thinking she's being cute or funny or intentionally misleading you know, it's not a secret that we haven't heard very much from her in the last couple of years, and hopefully this is the end of it. Yeah, yeah, look, it, I think there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty out there, especially around the topic of cannabis. But what I will say is that, you know, it's not really changing the uh, the trajectory of growth in the industry. And, you know, I think one way we can point to that is the fact that Arkansas now has actually overcome a major court challenge to get uh, cannabis on the ballot, 
where they were told initially that the uh, the language was misleading. That was appealed and has gotten through the courts now. And ultimately, the result is it'll end up on the ballot and it's going to pass in Arkansas on the ballot. So it's uh, it, it's nice to see that even as people are trying to spread you know mistruths about the cannabis plant and you know what it does, what it doesn't do. Uh, how it affects people. Ultimately, there are a lot of people out there that aren't having it and uh, are you know, allowing the industry to proliferate exactly as expected. So kind of a big win in Arkansas, don't you think? I, I do think it's a big win, but I, you know, I, I don't want to say that it's a surprising win because one of the things that we've been talking about is that red state after red state have been putting marijuana initiatives on the ballot and they're all passing, right? And so, you know, again, Kellyanne Conway, you know, these are the people who you purport to, you know, speak for. These people like marijuana, so stop, go home and let these people smoke their marijuana and enjoy it. And I do think it's wonderful that, that it's happening down in Arkansas. For better or for worse, I think that throughout the whole Roe versus Wade thing, Arkansas showed a fairly amazing amount of intellectual honesty that other Trump following, you know, red states uh, uh, followed. Ultimately, I don't know that he was successful in doing everything he wanted to do down there with it. But yeah, look, good for Arkansas. You know, why not? There, that's that's a state with people who like to relax and enjoy and have a good time as much as anybody. And I'm happy to see uh, that they're going to have a chance to vote it in and willing to bet like you that it does get voted in. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting one specifically because of who their governor is. You know, if anyone knows anything about Asia Hutchinson, who was formerly the drug czar in the United States, you know, this is a guy that, that spent his life going against uh, any sort of drug policy um, reform. And has been very, very vocal in his opposition, he's been very vocal about this initiative as well. I mean, he's been the one to say, you know, hey, I, I urge people to vote against it. I urge, you know, the, the, the police unions to come out against it. I urge all sorts of people to speak out against this thing. But ultimately, it's, you know, it is up to the will of the voters. But there's been a, a pretty uh, concerted campaign to try to keep this thing off the ballot. And once they realize that it would pass the, uh, at the ballot box, you know, there's been a lot of dirty tricks that have been played in, in trying to, to delay it, you know, try to make sure it doesn't end up on the ballot by claiming that the, the language of, the, um, of the, the question is misleading. You know, ultimately it was the, uh, the Arkansas Supreme Court who made the decision to keep it on. So it doesn't, you know, no longer can it be appealed. And it went, um, you know, over the, the wishes of, you know, a very Republican governor who was very much, um, you know, involved in the war on drugs. So to see it happen there with, with Hutchinson as the, uh, the lead, to me, was a, a really nice vindication. Well, the other part that bothers me about that is whatever happened to the Republicans saying, you know, the will of the people controls, right? We see that in Arkansas and Missouri. We talked about a lawsuit that was filed that was trying to knock adult use off the ballot for this November. In South Dakota, we saw another favorite of ours, Christy Noem, pull nonsense. When after the proposal was passed, she sent her uh, her attorney general in to file a lawsuit claiming that the whole thing was unconstitutional because it wasn't properly put on the ballot. And what's amazing to me is that the people in the states, you know, don't just drive down to their capitals and protest that. They all had no problem going and protesting all the masks and all of that nonsense. Why aren't they down there protesting that Christy Noem is taking away the right that they voted for? Or that some of these governors, you know, are, are, are going to be know-it-alls and decide for themselves, you know, what's best for the citizens of their state. That's the nanny state, right? That's what these guys are all about being against. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate that they do that, but we all know that once we cut through the, the, the political nonsense and the people actually get to vote on it, they pass it in huge numbers. And I think that if the people of Arkansas are not deceived or, you know, otherwise lied to, they will have a chance to vote on it. And again, I like to think that they will go right ahead and support that. Yep. But as you know, you know, that's not the end of it. You know, what Christy Nome did was uh, was retroactive, was after the voters had passed it. 
So, you know, with a governor like Asia Hutchinson, does he, uh, does he look at what, you know, Christie's done previously or look at some other um, uh, roadmaps of, of how to stymie this? And, and again, that's just not the state level. It's also the municipal level. And we've seen it, you know, in, in state after state where municipalities have said, we don't want this in our backyard. And, you know, a lot of the larger state markets have um, self-rule sort of uh, determination at the municipal level, which allows a, um, a town that even a town that voted overwhelmingly in favor of cannabis um, on a ballot initiative. They can still say, yeah, well, you know, that's great that our voters in this town said yes to it, but, you know, not in our backyard. We really don't want it. California is, is probably the most obvious example of that, you know, Massachusetts for a long time was another really good one. Even Colorado, where Dan is, you know, for a long time. I mean, the Colorado Springs for years was only medicinal, didn't have adult use. Which meant everyone drove over to Manitou Hot Springs to uh, to you know or Manitou Springs, pardon me, to uh, to go buy their adult use cannabis, which is a huge windfall for the dispensaries in in that town at the expense of the uh, the dispensaries that are selling medicinal in Colorado Springs. And we've known for a long time, just anecdotally, we've known that that actually causes um, an illicit market to thrive. You know, if if your town's going to say no to it and there's nowhere around you to actually procure legal cannabis even after the law has been passed. You know, all you've done, and we talked about this ad nauseum on the show, is, uh, you know, create a market for the illicit market to continue. But we finally actually have something that's empirical. It's not just anecdotal. That was uh, released relatively recently. That was put out um, by a combination of Leafly and Whitney Economics. And if you guys aren't familiar with Whitney Economics, uh, it's my buddy, Bo Whitney, who is an economist who's done great work in the canvas space. But, you know, these two groups teamed up to say, okay, what happens with these opt-out laws and, and unregulated sales? And, you know, if a municipality says no, is the expectation that, uh, that illicit sales, you know, continue unfettered? And, uh, you know, when a town says yes, does that drive down the, uh, the, the sales of illicit uh, cannabis? And the answer came back that very clearly it did. And I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that one, Larry, but, you know, it really substantiates what I think we already believed uh, to be the truth. Which is good. And I'm glad that we have it, right? Because every time I go to speak to a municipality that's deciding that they're going to opt out, one of the first things I have to say to them is, why we don't want our kids to smoke. Your kids are already smoking. They're already having access to marijuana. And this is exactly one of the reasons why you want to allow adult use into your community. Because if you give people a legal option, a viable legal option with good product at a reasonable price, they will take the legal option. But, you know, when the minute you say we're not going to allow it in our neighborhood, okay, so what happens? Yes, you can go over to the next neighborhood and get it legally, but in that neighborhood, now the black market can come swooping in and the people in there, oh, you can't, they don't have any dispensaries for you here. Don't worry, we'll take care of you. You know, and they do, and they step right in and they fill that void very, very nicely. But nobody ever wants to hear that. Nobody ever wants to believe this. Nobody ever wants to, to know uh, that you're helping the black market, that you're, you're, you're actually making things worse by not allowing uh, the legal program to operate in your community. And they always say, oh, we don't believe you. That's just propaganda. That's nonsense. And here again is evidence. And, and let's take this moment and, and just do a quick plug uh, for our show, because coming up in a few weeks, we're going to have a, a, a very, very special guest on our show, Mason Tavert, uh, who's one of the leading uh, cannabis consultants out there. Uh, and he's worked uh, with Paul Armentano and a number of other people. And they've come out uh, with a book, If, if uh, Alcohol is Not So Safe, Why Are We Driving Everyone to Drink? It's a book filled with statistics and filled with addressing these exact issues, but with citations, real citations to actual studies and actual uh, sources where you can go and look it up. And it's it's my number one tool uh, when trying to go after, you know, these types of alarmists and, and, and you know, people who just 
they still live in the day of reefer madness, even if they don't want to admit it. And I think it's going to be great to have somebody like Mason on our show uh, who can take the time and, you know, very clear headed and level headed, you know, speak to all of these crazy theories and thoughts that people have and attribute to marijuana uh, in kind of what I see as a desperate effort to keep out something that they all tried when they were kids, but they're afraid that their kids won't know how to handle it. So why should their kids get the same experience as them, right? It's it's the, the helicopter parents gone wild. And, um, you know, it'll be nice to hear from somebody who's taken the time to really do some research on this and, uh, you know, can can discredit the nonsense and, and point to the benefits. Yeah, for sure. And if you actually look at the study that, that Leafly and uh, Whitney Economics did, what makes it so interesting is there's actually a table within that article that shows, you know, the number of stores per uh, 100,000 residents in a state. And everyone thinks of California as having such a robust, massive, huge legal market in the state. To, to give a, an idea of kind of what this looks like, in Montana, for every 100,000 residents, there's 39 stores. Uh, in, Al- in Alaska, there's 20 stores for 100,000. You get down to, to California, there are three. Three stores per 100,000 people, which is absolutely absurd. You know, like... When I look at a store and I try to think about, okay, you know, is it worth opening up? And can, can it do the numbers that I want to see it do from an investment perspective to be successful? I look at a total addressable market of 20,000 person, you know, 20,000 people per store, which would mean there should be five stores per 100,000. But that's to have, you know, really successful stores. Like those are markets I salivate for because I go, wow, you know, look, that one can actually make, you know, a fair amount of money. You see that in states like Washington and Massachusetts and New Mexico that all have six stores per 100,000, which means they're, they're good, healthy markets. And if you look at the stores in those states... They, they put up good numbers. They're able to service the um, the market pretty well. You know, Colorado has 18 stores per 100,000. But if you look at the illicit sales versus the legal sales in each of these markets, the less stores per 100,000, the greater the, the percentage of illicit sales in a very, very meaningful way. So, you know, it's one of those things that uh, when you do take it back to the regulators, we now have something where we can say, look, there's been a, a really you know, well-designed study on this by reputable economists as well as reputable um uh, media sources within the cannabis industry that we can now present to you and say, look, this is what's happening. And, you know, if you don't think that you're, you know, still going to have massive amounts of illicit sales in your backyard uh, by keeping this in- illegal, let- let's explain to you why you're wrong. Now, having said that, from a business perspective, obviously most you know store operators prefer that their competition is muted in some way. But when you've got entire municipalities that have no access, uh, it- it's a travesty just because all it does is artificially keep alive a very well-entrenched illicit market, which at this point I think we're all very keen to see go away. I agree with that, um, you know, very much. And, you know, if the government would just get the hell out of the way and let the people who know what they're doing step in and, and you know, kind of lead this market into the future, we might very well wind up with a, a workable legal market. You know, as it is right now, we're, we're, we're really struggling to do so all over the place. And, you know, I don't think there's a single state we can point to right now where we say, wow, that state's doing it absolutely right. And this is the model that everyone ought to strive for. You know, there's some states that are doing better than others. But on balance, you know, when it, people try to legislate and work with marijuana the same way they work with everything else, it doesn't always work out uh, the way that they had hoped. But certainly, I think that uh, if you can get people at the municipal level to begin to understand this connection, uh, that we might find more of them that are willing to opt in and participate in the program and be help, you know, become a solution to the problem, you know, rather than uh, a community that just simply closes its eyes and pretends like it's not happening. Yep, agreed. And I think that people not understanding or misunderstanding cannabis in general, whether it's municipalities or whether it's other organizations, it has been 
something we've been dealing with now for years, and you keep hoping that with um, with greater education and, and greater understanding of you know what this um, substance is, and having you know more sight lines onto what the um, the result of, of using it is, that people would change their minds or change their positions. But you know, as of last week. The World Anti-Doping Agency has decided to keep cannabis on its list of banned substances for international athletes following a scientific review and a determination that cannabis use, quote, get this one, violates the spirit of sport, whatever the hell that means. So, you know, we've seen it where U.S. runner uh, Shikari Richardson was suspended from being in the Olympics last year due to a positive THC test. We've certainly seen it with other athletes as well. At what point... Do the uh, International Olympic Committee and other you know groups like the World uh, Anti-Doping or whatever the, the the Anti-Doping Agency when do they realize that cannabis? And I'm going to say this clearly for all you out there listening is not a performance-enhancing drug. You are not going to run faster from cannabis use. You are not going to lift more weight. You are not going to pole vault higher. You're not going to ski faster. Cannabis is is not something you are taking. Anyone is taking to give them an edge. Like there's there's a thousand drugs out there that do that. This ain't one of them. So why we're still dealing with this? Any idea? Yeah, because of people like Kellyanne Conway, right? You know, I mean, it's, it all goes back to Kellyanne Conway. <laughs> well, you know, even just a minute ago when you were saying about how we're trying to get the positive message out, all I could think is for every hundred hours that we put in trying to shape a positive message for marijuana, Kellyanne Conway gets on Fox News and shoots her mouth off. And, you know, 10 million people take her word as gospel and just discount everything else that's been said. And that's the part that bothers me, right? Is that, you know, just enough already, whether it's at her level, whether it's at the international level, you know, there's, there's some things in life that we don't test for. There's some things we do. If somebody could explain to me why, why marijuana is on the list of things we do instead of on the list of things we don't, I'd be willing to listen, but I haven't heard it either, except, you know, people who say that endurance athletes, maybe marathon runners, that the smoking cannabis before beforehand can help help you through the periods of boredom or whatever when you when you hit mile 15 or whatever of the 26 miles and you say how am I going to keep going but even that is questionable at best you know but it's I, I think it's all public relations it's all nope we're not giving into the hippies you know we're not going to let people smoke marijuana not in our world but the crazy part about this I mean and I'll, I'll repeat it is after a scientific review the determination was the cannabis use violates the spirit of sport. How is that scientific in any way as far as a conclusion? Now, if they were to say that, you know, like increased oxygen levels by two thirds or, you know, some other like increased uh, body mass by whatever, there I understand that's a scientific conclusion. But to say something, your scientific conclusion is that it violates the spirit of sport is one of the most nonsensical explanations I've ever heard attached to a, um, a, a, a study related to substance abuse or substance use. Well, right. And just minus the study, it's right up there with Schedule 1, which says that marijuana has no known medical benefits or values. Right. So people make the statements that they want to make. And then they just stand on them. You know, there's thousands and thousands of healthcare providers who would disagree with that statement. And we've talked about Raphael Mishulam and others who have long histories of studies of patients who have received uh, benefits from the use of cannabis. But, you know, the United States in its infinite wisdom has made a determination without doing any studies. We, we don't even need Mishulam at this point. We, we, we've got Marinol. We've got Dronabinol. We've got other THC-based medications the FDA has approved. At a certain point, you can't have it both ways and say there's no medicinal benefit whatsoever, yet still approve an FDA drug for dissemination to the, the broader public. You, it, it's, it's not both. 
It's either it has medicinal benefits or it doesn't. Well, it's true, but it's the same type of, you know, government, we don't care. You know, it doesn't matter whether what we say is illogical. This is what we say. And so you just kind of need to accept it. We've, we somehow have made a determination that marijuana is one of the most dangerous substances known to man. And it has to be completely eliminated because anyone who uses it is just as likely to die as somebody who uses heroin. You know, it's, it's, it's bad, bad, bad. And I'm just like, look, we see it in everything. So take fentanyl and take Kellyanne Conway from it and all of her screaming about fentanyl. Great, scream about fentanyl. But you know what I don't like? When they scream about fentanyl and they want to enhance punishments because a police officer opened a car and there was a sample of fentanyl on the, uh, on the armrest on the door. And the police officer got within 20 meters of the fentanyl. And oh my God, we all know that fentanyl can crawl right through your skin and, and you know kill you and make you, despite the fact that all medicine, all studies on it have shown that no, if you take it and ingest it, it can kill you. If some powder falls on your hand, it doesn't kill you. But does the government make that? Dis- nope, they go because they use it for punishment enhancement. You endanger the life of a police officer because you exposed him to fentanyl. So even on something like fentanyl that does cause overdose, they're still not being truthful. So how do they ever expect anybody to listen to them or to, you know, to, to, to be willing to accept the government on its face when it says, oh, no, we, we want to work with you. We, we think we really want to do this and, and be a partner with it. That's why the black market survives because everybody looks at the government and says, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, uh- I have a dream that at some point in my lifetime, this stops being a misunderstood substance and at a certain point, the propaganda around it ends. And I really hope that uh, we're getting closer to that day. But every time we take a couple of steps forward, I feel like we're taking one or two back. So I, I remain hopeful that uh, the things will change. But uh, my optimism wanes when I see uh, people pushing what we know to be you know, completely false or, you know, if nothing else, pushing a false narrative. Uh, in order to uh, to push a, a political agenda of their own that creates a, a false equivalence or, or creates a correlation. So I think everyone ought to do this. I think we all ought to fly marijuana flags in front of our house and take pictures and send them to Kellyanne Conway. That's my suggestion. And we'll help send the message that way and spread the good word. And then she can decide if we're all crazy. Well, I've got a better idea, which is along the same lines, Larry, which is the people of Pennsylvania. So just make sure that, that guy gets in office because he is truly one of the greatest advocates for the cannabis industry that we have. You know, if we're going to look at um, who's going to change policy at a federal level, we need senators in office that are willing to stand up for, uh, for cannabis um, reformation. And John Fetterman is probably our most likely uh, ally to come uh, that we have yet to really been able to tap uh, because he hasn't had the ability to have his voice heard in a, um, in a national stage. And he's about to. I, mean, I think it's looking relatively strong that he defeats um, Mehmet Oz in the next election. Uh, I think it's very likely that Mastriano loses to uh, Josh Shapiro and very likely we're going to see Pennsylvania become a, a very strong advocate for cannabis reformation, which I think will also lead to a, a much bigger tri-state area of New York, New Jersey and uh, Pennsylvania working in concert with one another to advance, you know, potentially um, uh, interstate commerce among those states. So, you know, if you're in Pennsylvania and you can get out there and vote in cannabis is a, an issue you feel strongly about. You don't have to like all of his policies, but but John Fetterman is a guy that will absolutely fight for your right for cannabis use. Uh, and, you know, I'm a huge fan of him for no other reason than that. That's good enough for me, too. I think he's awesome. I, I've been very impressed with him. I look at his willingness to continue to run and make himself publicly exposed after suffering a stroke to be very, very impressive and somebody who truly is interested in serving for the public good and not because of what good they can get from the public. 
Well, I think we've uh, we've done a good job today, soapboxing. You know, I, th- I think we get better at it every week. <laughs> and, and ordinarily, it's me that's got the passion on some of these things. But Larry, it's good to hear you feisty today, and uh, you know, really coming out and letting people know, you know, how you feel about certain issues. Because again, these things are important to all of us. And uh, you know, as cannabis proponents, advocates, users, uh, business uh, people, just industry supporters in general. You've got to know where people stand. You've got to know where people in your community stand on these issues. And, uh, you know, I'm not a one category or one issue voter, but I'm pretty damn close a lot of the time. And for me, you know, I've spent my entire adult life dedicated to the cannabis industry. That If you don't support the industry that I've chosen as my vocation, knowing, you know, what I know about this plant, about this substance, um, I don't really have much time to support you as a politician. So it's, uh, you know, there's, there's still plenty of of guys out there that, you know, I like some of their other policies that don't support me on this one, but I have a real tough time pulling that lever for them. So uh, not telling people how to vote, just saying that, you know, this is the way I feel about it. And hopefully other people that listen to the show feel the same way because this is an important issue to all of us. No doubt. Get out and vote, folks. It's the most important thing you can do. Support these politicians who support the things that you like to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're not registered to vote, uh, go see our friends at headcount.org and, uh, and, and get registered and Sign up for those guys. Next time you're at a show, stop by and say hello, throw them 20 bucks and say thanks for the work you're doing as well. Uh, the more people we can get registered to vote, the more people that support cannabis initiatives. You know, the same way we plug Conscious Alliance for feeding the world, you know, let's plug Headcount for uh, for getting people to to get signed up to vote and to really, you know, tie the jam band community together with um, with voting initiatives. I mean, we're less than 45 days away now from, um, from election day, and this is a big one, folks. Uh, so as we get closer to election day, I'm sure we'll be discussing a couple other candidates and how their uh, stances are on cannabis as well. But, you know, at least, at least we covered uh, Fetterman today. But um, let's segue back, man. Let's, let's, let, let's talk some music again. One of the other things I loved about this 1975 period was, uh, was some of the other instrumental songs, you know, that, that came out during this uh, period, whether it was um, uh, Strange Occurrences in the Desert or Sandcastles and Glass Camels or um, my favorite from that period, which is... Uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, either called Stronger Than Dirt or Milk in the Turkey, I don't know which one you prefer, but, uh, but it is one of my favorite jams. It can be played with just absolute, just like riotous vigor when, uh, when they're on, especially in 75 and 76. love about that Larry I love the uh, I love the drumming I love the cymbal play there's just so much like hi-hat crashing on that that's just you know done in a measured way but there's just a lot of um, a, a lot of cymbal work being done by uh, by Billy there is it, it, and it, it, it really adds to it I really like it a lot and you know, um, you were talking about some of like the more obscure tunes on the album, right? Stronger Than Dirt or any of those that you were referencing. And, and the, you know, the dead do that a lot, right? This is not like on uh, Anthem of the Sun and the whole uh, that's it for the other one's suite. That's even broken down into like we leave the castle and, you know, and, and other little things. I, and my buddies and I used to listen to it. We'd always get a kick out of it trying to figure out which one of these little, you know, 
subcategories of songs that's been identified as the album are they actually in in terrapin one of the best things about dead and company and we'll get back to them in a second is that they were playing the whole terrapin suite for a while and they were actually diving in to some of these other songs to add a siding and you know whatever some of the other ones were from the from the album in the full suite that jerry and the boys never got around to playing and i think it's kind of fun to hear those those are like the little forgotten tunes on the album that kind of got lost in the shuffle, and it's nice to see them come back every now and then. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you got the San Bernardino Swing Auditorium from, what, 22677, where they you know covered part of it. But, yeah, I mean, for, for the most part, when we think about Terrapin, we think about Lady with a Fan. You know, we don't, we don't think about, you know, all the other stuff, like the While You Were Gone segment. So there's so much more to that, that suite and so much more to, uh, to the album. The same thing is true with Blues for All. Like, Blues for All, they only took a couple gems from that album, that they uh, they continue to play, obviously it helps with Franklin's and uh, music never stopped being you know primary ones. But even the song Blues for All, they really dropped out of the repertoire. You know, didn't didn't get played all that often after um, I think probably after '76. I have to go back and look at look at Dead Bass. But it's uh, there there aren't that many they took from this, and it's such a creative album. And I don't think it gets you know necessarily all the recognition it deserves, but it has a lot of really cool instrumental uh, portions to it that are much, much different than any other album they've put out. And it was a really, for me, like Blues for All is one of the only times that they did a real experimental piece, you know, a real experimental um, album that went after a very specific sort of Middle Eastern feel and genre in a really creative way. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's certainly a great album. And, and I agree with what you said about uh, about how that album is put together. It's uh, it's very special, you know, for the people who like it. And uh, it's, it's certainly produced uh, some of the finest dead tunes uh, that we've ever got to listen to. And I, I made reference to Dead & Company before because Dead & Company, like them, love them, hate them, get bored by them. And, and we've talked to people who cover the spectrum on that. The one thing that Dead & Company was really good at was going back and pulling out old tunes that hadn't really been heard for a long time and giving them new life and, and playing them as they go along. And uh, that was always a lot of fun. But we bring this up because uh, the Dead has recently uh, just made an announcement that as they uh, prepare to start organizing their summer tour, uh, for 2023, uh, they've gone ahead to say that this will be the final go-around for Dead & Company. This will be their final tour, uh, after which uh, I think Bob Weir said, uh, nobody's retiring. We're going to keep doing everything until we drop. It might just be uh, with different groups of people. So my question to you, Rob, is what are your thoughts on this? Not just that they're splitting up, but they've decided to actually still have one more tour before they do so. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, Look, these guys aren't aren't getting younger, and they go out on the road the way they have. I'm amazed they're still keeping up a touring performance schedule the way they have the last couple of years. And you know, this past year was was pretty difficult. You know, this past year you saw members of the band having to take breaks in the middle of tour, and you know, all these guys now are are over eighty years old. I think Weir maybe is the youngest, and I think you know, Weir's what he's pushing eighty himself right now. So it's it's real real difficult to to keep up that kind of level of energy. So not surprised, you know, I, I definitely saw, you know, Mickey put out a really cool tweet the other day about, you know, kind of his thoughts about it as well and weirded as well. But look, the, the way I look at it is seven years of this has been probably six years longer than I thought would happen when it was first announced. The fact that they've played as many shows as they have together. I mean, this, is, this has been a true period of Grateful Dead music that you can't deny. You can't say like, you know, like this has lasted longer than Further did. It's lasted longer than the other ones did. It's lasted longer than any other period I can think of outside of you know the Grateful Dead itself. So pretty amazing. I mean, we've had a canon of you know close to a thousand shows. I think at this era. maybe not that many, but you know several hundred shows at this point that these guys have played together and their music has evolved. So look, it's, for me, it's bittersweet. 
I think the lull, you know, as I said, keep playing music in, in some incarnation or another, but it does kind of, you know, make you think like, all right, about to gear up to another sort of fairly well situation where, you know, everyone that's a serious deadhead goes, I, I kind of have to be there for this one. You know, this is, uh, this is probably, you know, it for the, um, for at least, you know, the last remaining three that are playing together. But, um, it's, it's probably time. It's probably run its course, but you know, what a, bonus of music we just got out of the last seven years absolutely you know and, and look we've talked from time to time they play the songs too slow they're too formulaic they're this they're that but the one thing that you can't deny is that they're the grateful dead's progeny and as such uh they are the keepers of the flame for that whole grateful dead thing and even like talking about phil who's out doing his shows and getting ready to kick off his philoween shows out in new york in october those are great but when phil brings in all those other musicians they do cover a lot of grateful dead they cover a lot of other songs and although you do have a crowd that's primarily deadheads it has a, a, at least to me a decidedly different feel to it when i'm at dead and company and i'm sitting in wrigley field and there's 35 or forty thousand fellow deadheads right there you know we haven't gotten that since soldier field or uh, uh alpine valley in, in this part of the world and it's always nice you know once a year whatever it is you know you have a weekend you have a friday a saturday night and it's like you know the high school reunion everybody gets together and everybody comes out of their tie dyes and everybody comes out and gives the ushers a hard time because they can all smoke marijuana openly on this night and you know whatever it, it's fun and and you know you, you bump into people you haven't seen in a long time and it kind of reminds you of what the whole idea of Grateful Dead and community was all about that, you know, first attracted me uh, into it anyway. And yeah, you have the band and maybe half the time we're talking just kind of with the band in the background, but it's, it's, it's nice and it's almost comforting, you know, to have that music there and to know that it's there. And it, I, mean, it, I, I think you're right. I think that these that probably one of the reasons they've announced it this way is, look, there are no dummies. Now they can sell out every one of these shows because every time they go into a town, this is it. And, you know, this will draw out the deadheads in force. You know, I don't want to say one last time because everybody was thinking one last time after 2015, uh, you know, and who knows what's going to come next. But if anything's going to come next, I would put in my vote for some form of a uh, conglomeration where Phil and Bobby are playing together again. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, it's hard to say what's going to come next, but, you know, I'm guessing that each of them are going to continue to play, whether it's Billy playing with Billy and the kids or you know, whether it's you know, Bobby playing more with Wolf Brothers you know, look, the, the music's not going away. And what I'll say that the last seven years of, of Dead & Co. have done, and, you know, I've seen very, very few shows. It, it hasn't been my favorite uh, incarnation of, of the band getting together. But what it has done is, is truly opened up a, um, a massive new audience to the band of much, much younger fans. And, and I'll tell you something that's really ironic and something that, that you know, I laughed about um, sitting with Trixie and Annabelle Garcia back, you know, six or seven years ago, right when this was being announced is, you know, Trixie had said to me, like, that um, John Merritt made a comment to her and her sister, like, this is going to, uh, you know, open up, like, the, the Grateful Dead's music to, to a whole, like, wave of new people. And Trixie at the time laughed about it and goes, yeah, like, the Grateful Dead needs to introduce their music to anyone else, you know, outside of who we already have. We already have millions upon millions of fans. And I got to say, you know, I, I thought it was a really arrogant statement of um, John Merritt at the time. But in retrospect, upon reflection of seven years, this wasn't just a tour. If it had been just a tour, it would have been an arrogant statement. But he backed it up, man. He, he introduced the Grateful Dead's music to millions and millions of younger fans and younger people that now have had the opportunity to say, like, I got to see the Grateful Dead, or at least the closest thing they could get to, you know, were you know, otherwise totally unavailable to them. And I give Mayor a ton of credit for, you know, sticking with this and really, you know, becoming, for lack of a better word, a member of the Grateful Dead for seven years. And, uh, you know, kudos, man. He's, he's not my favorite guitar player. He's not my favorite voice. He's certainly no Garcia. But he did his job. He, he, he got it done in a way that I don't, I don't know if anyone else could have filled that role 
and opened up uh, the Grateful Dead's music to as many new fans and younger fans as he did. Yeah, it's true. It, you know, kind of an interesting reverse way. He gave the band credibility for a lot of the younger people who might not otherwise have connected with the Grateful Dead, but they all knew John Mayer. And certainly that was a big help. You know, the other person I think, you know, who's got to get a lot of credit in all of that is O'Teal because he's just stepped in and done an absolutely amazing job. Uh, and we talked about him a little bit previously, but you can never talk about O'Teal too much because he's just that good. You know, but being able to land him and make him a part of that band and, you know, really getting him into the whole flow of the Grateful Dead and allowing him to fly his chops on you know certain tunes like comes the time and things like that was just absolutely wonderful but, but we'd had you know like the allman brothers influence had already been there with you know warren haynes playing with the uh with, with the boys for for quite a while so you know sort of that crossover from from you know that band in that stage to uh to this audience we already had that link right this is truly like a pop icon that, that came on with john mayer where john mayer basically hung up his own you know solo career at least you know put it on hold for a period of time to make music that he was just like, you know, I guess kind of enchanted by, like as he got to know it and got to know the catalog more and more, just dug into it and just really, you know, made it his own. So for that reason, I, I can't imagine if like, you know, tomorrow uh, Katy Perry decided to, uh, you know, start playing Grateful Dead music, right? Or, you know, name name the artist, you know, uh, like Harry Styles, right? That's not going to happen. That That's essentially what John Mayer did is, you know, take a, uh, someone that was a number one pop musician and say, you know, I'm going to recreate myself as a member of the Grateful Dead. I mean, everyone knew he's an amazing blues uh, musician and amazing, you know, amazing guitar player. But to, to take something where you're already selling millions of albums and just say, I'm going to put this on hiatus and, and decide to play with these guys because just the opportunity is so, you know, enriching for me personally as a musician. That's, in many ways, it's just such a cool story. I think you're right. And, you know, we've heard, you know, guys who are really tied in with the dead, folks like David Gans and people like that who have really, you know, talked about it wasn't just that uh, John decided he was going to take on the role, but the level of detail and the level of preparation that he put into it and going back and listening to Garcia and really trying to get uh, a feeling, not, I think, as he said, not so that he could play it exactly the same way Jerry could but so that he could play it in a manner was that was consistent with the way uh, the style that Jerry used. And, you know, that that's a really tricky proposition for deadheads, you know, probably for any band, but really for deadheads, right? You know, because there's those of us that we like to sing along to the song. And if the song isn't really played just quite right, you know, it can be a little disjointing. And, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, what's going on here? This isn't the way Jerry would play it. But if you stopped and you gave him, you know, an opportunity to really listen to what he was doing, you know, I think you could appreciate that even if it wasn't just like Jerry, it was certainly in a style that was reminiscent of Jerry. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, nobody needs my opinion on that. He was playing with Bob Weir, you know, if, if Bob Weir was happy with it and liked it, if the drummers were happy with it and liked it, then, you know, to me, that's enough of an endorsement. You know, if, if they say he's good enough, he's the guy we're going to go on tour with then, you know, okay, I, I accept those guys uh, that if they feel he's the right guy, he is. And sure, you know, the shows we went to, he did put on good performances and he was energetic. And, uh, you know, he really did play some of those songs as if he owned them. And, you know, look, if you're going to go out and do it, I'd much rather have my lead guitarist have that kind of an attitude than just be going through the motions. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, we watched Trey do the same thing for the brief, you know, period that he played with the, uh, with the band you know, for those five nights, but he gave everything he had to, to learn the catalog and to learn the music. Anyone that actually takes that seat, I think, has to take it seriously. But, you know, convincing Trey to do something else besides his own band is probably a tougher sell than, than Mayer. And, uh, you know, look, they're still selling out uh, every venue they're playing as fish. So uh, I think that kind of leads us to our last thing, which is, you know, we just saw the uh, the announcement of Four Nights at MSG this uh, New Year's Eve. And 
you know, the tradition, the tradition continues. This is the first time we'll actually play a New Year's run in three years because of COVID and because, you know, last year they had to cancel it and they played their New Year's run in April. But, you know, here we are back to MSG for four nights at the Garden, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, Friday and Saturday to, to end the year. It would be great that New Year's Eve is on Saturday night. It, it should be an epic run. And uh, tickets, I think, for, for pre-order went on sale yesterday and uh, tickets go on sale to the public, I think, on uh, October the 7th or 8th, if I'm correct. So uh, what do you think? I mean, it should be a pretty fun run, huh? Yeah, and I have to say it, it, was, it was kind of a little bit humorous for me because I was following this story for a while because my son and all of his buddies who are all such huge fish fans, uh, and they've been going to the Fish New Year's Eve shows, you know, religiously uh, every year that they've had them. Last year they were, the, this past year they were at the April shows, the makeup shows, and that's really an important part of their year. Uh, and for the longest time, there was, you know, all sorts of rumors flying around that Fish was not going to do New Year's Eve shows, or if they were, they were not going to do them at MSG, that Billy Joel had somehow stepped in and flexed his authority, and he was going to be taking up MSG for... Uh, New Year and oh my God, what would fish do? And all of a sudden this announcement comes out and I feel like the entire fish world just kind of had a deep sigh of relief. Like, okay, you know, good. We, we still have some things that we can always count on year after year. We got dicks, we got New Year's Eve, we got Halloween and, you know, and it's wonderful that they can go out and do it. And, you know, one of the things I, I think that's always interesting about fish in their New Year's Eve runs is that if, you know, New Year's Eve would fall on Thursday night, then they'd still play shows Friday and Saturday, you know, to kind of play out the weekend. And you know, I, I always, so to me, this feels more like a, you know, a true uh, uh, New Year's Eve. I always like it when the New Year's Eve show is the end of the run and just kind of, you know, takes you to whatever levels it's going to take you and then says, okay, now go have a good year. Not that I'm complaining, certainly, you know, that, that Fish does it that other way, but I, I, I do appreciate the fact that the show will kind of chronologically, the, the run this year will end on the 31st. Well, it's always hard on New Year's Day to say, I'm going to wake back up and go see another show tonight. <laughs> you know, just, it's, it's relatively taxing if you're, uh, if you're partying into the New Year the night before. I mean, usually on New Year's Day, for anyone that goes out and hits it hard on New Year's Eve, the last thing you're thinking about is what you're doing on the 1st. You know, it's like you don't even call it until the 3rd. <laughs> so uh, it, it's nice to see that it actually coincides with a Saturday night date and, you know, they finish it off and 31st is the final show. But uh, I did put in for uh, for tickets, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm giving myself about a 0% chance of getting them, but uh, but there's there's always some hope out there. But uh, look, man, good time today. Lots of stuff, lots of ground we covered. Finishing it off, I don't have much more to say outside of we're going to leave the audience with a bit more of the Franklin's Tower and, you know, just as a little prelude into what we're going to listen to. You know, in, in 1975, towards the end of the third time they played it, which is what we're going to listen to, and then into 76, you know, there really was a, a real slowdown at the end of the Franklin's that they never did in the uh, in the late 80s or in the 90s that, you know, really, really sort of chilled it out almost to the point they were talking into the, uh, into the microphone before they came back in and just, you know, fired it away at the end. Uh, and it's one of my favorite ways to listen to a Franklin's. Like my favorite Franklin's are probably from, you know, 76 or 77 for that reason. And, uh, yeah, I think this one's a, a great representation of where the song was going at the time. So with that, I'll leave you with, this is Rob Hunt from Linnea Holdings, thanking everyone for, uh, for tuning in and listening again. And thanks to, uh, to Larry Michigan and Dan Humiston, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Rob. It was a great show today. We covered a lot of good stuff. Love the music. Lots of good stuff to come. Like I say, we have Mason Tvert coming down the line. We're setting up a few other great interviews. And as always, there's more Grateful Dead music out there than we know what to do with. So uh, you know we'll have a good fun. We'll have a good time in, on, on our future shows as well. So thanks again for listening. Have a great week and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. The dude, run away.
listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.